right, let's go. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Stephen. Just so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us uh, in person. Thanks for joining us online. You know, we are in this series today called Jesus People. Let's all say that together. Jesus People. And the whole idea is that we just want to infuse some visionary DNA uh, into your life, into our church, as we just look at culture and what's happening around us, as we launch back into a school year. Like, what does it look like? We really believe that in, in Jesus, life comes together. Amen. Ooh. Oh. Hey, I'm playing hurt up here. You need to get in the game. Let's go. <laughs> hey, we really believe that in, li- in Jesus' life comes together. Amen? Amen? There we go. Thank you very much. It's going to help if y'all participate. Um, uh, but we really believe that he is the beginning and the end. And so maybe you're new to faith, just figuring out, just coming along. Maybe somebody invited you and uh, you're just getting back into the groove. Uh, we really want to be able to just paint this picture of what it looks like to be a Jesus People. Now, last week, we started out with what's called the Great Commandment, and, and it's this place in the Bible where someone asked Jesus, what is the Great Commandment? And if it's the greatest, then we should try to be great at it. And so uh, we asked this question, man, how great are you at the Great Commandment? On a scale of 1 to 10, how great are you at the Great Commandment? And, and we just tried to kind of maybe help move the needle maybe one degree or one, one, one point up the scale over the last week. And today I just want to start out with the question, what makes your life best? What makes your life best? If there was something you could do to make your life best, if you knew it could help you be encouraged, you could wake up every day with some spring in your step, ready to tackle the day, if you knew it actually had the ability to make you healthier, if you knew it could help your grades to be better, if you knew that it would lower your blood pressure and raise your life satisfaction, like what is it that makes your life best? And what if I came at it from a negative standpoint? What in your life, what one thing, if, if someone tried to take away from you, you would just fight for it? Like you would go all out ham, throw hands, you'd sue somebody, you'd claw, you'd scratch because you knew you were hanging on to it. What is the one thing that makes your life best? Now we are in church and the answer is always Jesus, but that's not the right answer. I think we all know what the right answer is. Man, the right answer is relationships. The right answer is relationships. See, they're crucial to our life. They're they're non-negotiable. Um, They are the oxygen and the water for our soul. They make us better. They make us healthier. They help us become everything God has created us to become. They make some some of the victories in life, they make them sweeter. They make some of the losses in life just a little less stinging. They help to maximize our potential and to materialize our purpose. Relationships. Are crucial. It's not a, a secret that I would say that, but have you ever noticed how difficult they are? Have you noticed how much you have to work for them? Have you no, ever noticed if you want to have be friends or relationships, you want to gather together in some form of community, if you want to get together, it requires work. You have to travel long distances, and you have to clean your house if somebody's coming over. <laughs> if you're trying to decide you're going to go out to a restaurant, well, that's difficult because we've got like, what, four million in our area right now? And they require work, but they are so worth it. So today, I just, I just want to encourage, I want to challenge us in the area of two habits. Two habits. Now, habits, we know, are actually what lead to the life that we want. You know, you want to show me someone's habit, I'll show you their destiny. I mean, you're always living in the direction of your habits. 
As James Clear said in Atomic Habits, which is an incredible book, by the way, if you haven't read that, you should. Our life is always trending in the direction of our habits. If you want to change your life, we should change our habits. Now, these two habits that I want to talk about today, number one is weekly worship. Number one is weekly worship. Now, now it's no shock that you're in church and I'm saying you should come to church regularly. Amen. Right. Like it's no shock that I would say that. But the truth is, it's actually what's best for us as individuals. Harvard recently did a study and it showed that kids that actually came to church on a weekly basis, a regular basis, that their grades were higher. Come on, parents. You ready for that? Like you don't have to do math and learn the new math. You just have to bring your kids to church. That's what's going to help them, that they actually have higher life satisfaction scores, that when they get into their 20s, they're able to live with more purpose and more meaning and more direction and not floundering because of just this habit. Man, there's something about gathering together with God's people, and I'm going to unpack all that and why that's the case, but there's something about it that actually is beneficial for our souls. So, So what does that mean, weekly worship. Like, I don't know what your regular rhythm would be. I know with COVID, things have changed, and we're grateful for online church. Um, But online church should not be a substitute for your gathering together with a group of people who are moving in the same direction. Like, if you're on vacation, or if you wake up um, with a stomach bug or hungover, now that's a bad reason to stay home. Just saying, some of you did that. Um, That's actually a better reason to come to church. Um, But when you, there are times when that's Definitely the way to go. Like, that's the move. And we do believe that online is going to be part of It's part of our culture that's here to stay. But there's something special that happens when we gather together. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had opportunity to pray over families. And we saw marriages get restored. We saw some people get moved out of addiction. There's just something that happens when God's people gather together. Even if you're just uh, in the journey, spiritually unresolved, trying to figure it out. So weekly worship. Hey, the second habit is just weekly discipleship. Weekly discipleship, midweek discipleship. Now, now a disciple is just somebody who is in the journey to know Jesus and to follow him. They're trying to make their lives pattern after the life of Jesus. And so it goes a little like this. A lot of people have mentors. And mentors are awesome. And we need mentors. Mentors are generally someone that's helping us kind of generically to be a better person in life. And there's not really a lot, there's not always a back and forth. And so we need mentors. Man, we need coaches. Many coaches, and many of you have leadership coaches and different kind of coaches, and they have this specific area of your life that they're speaking into to help you be better. But discipleship is what happens when we gather together with some people who are all running after the same eternal goal, and that's for our lives to look like Jesus. So two habits, weekly worship, weekly discipleship. And I want to give you five reasons today why this is so crucial for your life and non-negotiable. Does that sound good? All right, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, Hebrews is written by a guy named Paul. And if you're new to Bible study, it's over in the, what we call the New Testament. It was written after Jesus was born and lived on the earth and died. Now, now one thing to point out is um, whenever, I, whenever we open the Bible, and we do it every week, and we do it for a reason because we believe it has the power to change your life. But every single week, we have people that are new. To, to Bible study, just a quick, uh, a quick uh, anecdote on that. A few years ago, I was leading an equip group. It's one of our discipling ex- training experiences. And there was a guy that came to my group, and he was in his 60s, and he had grown up in a pastor's home. And when he comes to group, he, he brings his Bible, and his Bible was, was still wrapped in the plastic cellophane that it comes wrapped in. And it was the first Bible that he had ever opened. 
And this is a guy that, that grew up going to church. So we know that every week we have people who are new. So if you're new, we are glad that you are here. And so what we want to do is kind of put some stuff on the bottom shelf, and then we'll work our way up. But we want to start somewhere. So for those of you that grew up the Bible, you've got it all memorized. It's written on your heart. You don't need to carry your Bible. Just be patient. All right. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start out in verse 19. I'm going to read down through verse 25. And then I'm going to come back and, and teach kind of through this passage today. He says, therefore, brothers. Now, brothers just means family. It's not gender specific. It's kind of a generic term for family. So therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He's talking about the, the temple, God's presence. I'm going to unpack that in a second. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's baptism. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, so Paul starts out, this particular passage, and he obviously talks about being together, and he starts out by talking about this idea of the holy places and the blood of Jesus and the curtain and all those things. So let me, let me unpack that for just a second. Now, in, that, in the Jewish religion, they worshiped in the temple, and in the very, very middle of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies. This was God's presence. This is where you could access God, and it was exclusive. Not everybody could go in there. First of all, you had to be a priest, and even the high priest only got to go in there once a year because it was so exclusive to be in God's presence, literally face-to-face -face with God. There, there's a myth that goes around about this, how special this place was and how exclusive it was, that when the high priest went in there, they would tie a rope around his ankle, so that just in case he had a heart attack and died in there, they could pull him out. Because if they went in there, they would certainly die too. So that just begins to show how difficult it was to go in and how special it was and how off limits it was to the average person. There was this massive curtain that was up. It was 60 feet high. It was four inches thick. thick. It, it weighed hundreds of pounds that separated people, kept us on the outside, and God was on the inside. We had no access to God. But then Jesus died. Amen. Jesus died. And literally, history records that as Jesus died, the, the veil, the curtain was torn in two and it was ripped open. Why is that? It's symbolizing the fact that we have access to God. That we have access to God. So in this passage, when Paul says three times, let us... He says, let us. What he's doing is trying to point the picture. If Jesus thought it was worth dying for, then it's worth living for. If Jesus thought us being together as a community able to access God, everyone coming into God's presence, that we don't need anybody to mediate for us. If Jesus thought it was worth dying for, then it's worth living for. And even Jesus was born into this context. So, so think a little bit about Jesus' life. Just a little history here. So Jesus was born into a family, together with people. Like some of y'all got some crazy families out there. You know what I'm talking about. Like 
he was born into a family marginalized. They were poor, um, a little scandalous because Mary was pregnant before they actually got married. Jesus was born into family. And his family wasn't always on his side. There is a story about one time when Jesus is in the house teaching. And while he's teaching, his brothers and his mom show up. They knock on the door like, Jesus, come with us. People are going to think you're crazy talking about being the son of God and stuff like that. Come with us. Like this was his family. And then he picks 12 to follow him. Maybe you've heard of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. So he's, he's picked 12 to do life with. And check this out. One of them, one of them at one point, he has to call him Satan. Like that's a difficult friendship right there. Do you know you got some friends like that? Then, then there's these other two whose mom was a helicopter mom, was always like, Jesus, you know, when you, when you do that kingdom thing, like, I want them to be right next to you. Can, you. can you arrange that? And then there was the times when he was always around the table with people, eating with people, so much so that he was called a glutton and a drunkard. And that's because Jesus knew that there's something special that happens across the table with people, that some, there's something that happens when we're together, that we're better together. Then there was that time when... The night before he died, he takes three of his friends, the closest ones to him, and says, hey, come with me to the garden. Pray, pray, pray for me because I need your encouragement. I need your help. Even Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus showed us what it meant for us. And if Jesus died for it, then we should live for it. You know, as we continue to read in that passage in verse 22, it says, let us, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this idea of drawing near that we see right there in the passage, it was a term, it was a worship term that was used in that culture for let us all move together towards the sanctuary. Let's all move together where we can worship together as a collective group. It's not just talking about one person, but it's talking about us together because it says, let us draw near. So he's talking about worshiping together with people. You know, in the New Testament, there are 59 times where the words one another are mentioned. 59 times. Let me read all of them for you. Just kidding. But let me just read a few for us. It says, be at peace with one another, love one another, wash one another's feet. Okay, that's weird, but it's contextual. Honor one another above yourself. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, don't try that at home. And then pray for one another. Like God just... This is the point that we're all together. And so he says, draw near and worship. And then Paul uses these three terms in this particular passage. He says, with a sincere heart, with full assurance, and with a sprinkled heart, um, washed clean. And so these three words kind of come together to, to kind of categorize this word engaged. Like when you show up for worship with other people, Paul is saying, when you come into the to temple to worship, when you do that, show up engaged, show up, ready to worship. Now, now for us, that, that's going to look different for, depending on where you are in your journey. So for instance, maybe you, you come today and you are kind of in the journey, maybe a friend invited you, or maybe with the back to school year, you're like, ah, I really need to figure this thing out. Maybe you have some faith questions. Hey, maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you have a need in your life and you're just trying to figure out where the answers are and you, and you find yourself here today. 
Uh, being engaged for you means like paying attention. Does this actually make sense to me? Do I understand what's being said? And when we get up and we sing songs, you know, and sometimes songs can have some churchy words. Have you noticed this? Like songs can have some churchy words. Like what, what, what does that mean? And maybe you're not in a place where you could sing because you don't sing out loud except in the shower. And you're just like, you're just processing. and You're just letting God kind of teach you through that. That's what engage means. You know, for some people, maybe engage means taking some notes, like you've been coming for a while. Maybe you grew up going to church. Like maybe you went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Anybody remember those days? All the time, right? You just came to church, and maybe that's you. And so you're just used to being in the habit of going to church. Like you just come to church, and it can get mundane, and it can get rote for you. And so maybe for you, it's just this idea that as you're showing up, you're like, I'm going to church and it's going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe try to go a little more regularly than I did. So I'm going to up my game one time a month, try to get there, or I'm going to go every time I can if, you know, unless I'm out of town or traveling or something like that. And I'm going to actually think about what's going to happen when I worship. I'm going to ask God to help me to learn from him. You're going to open your Bible when we open your Bible. And as you look around and you see people, maybe you're praying for people around you. Maybe you're praying for the empty seats um, that are around you for people to show up that you know. Like, that's what it looks like to be engaged. And when we stand up to sing, for some of you, that means singing. For some of you, that means, I'm, can I get some coffee to help me not feel like I have to sing? Um, that's supposed to be funny, y'all. Come on. You know you don't like to sing all the time. And so, like, it just means being engaged in what's going on. It just means being engaged. And this is what Paul is speaking to when he talks about drawing together. You know that God actually, God actually shows up when we worship together. God actually shows up when we worship together. In Psalm chapter 22, it's something that David wrote about worship. In chapter 22, verse 3, David wrote this. He says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So another way of saying this is that God inhabits the praises of his people. Like when we gather together to sing, God inhabits the praises of his people. That, that singing, worshiping together, man, that's actually God's love language. Like, like, how many of you guys know what your love language is? Like, quite a few. Like, like mine's gifts. I'm not saying that for any reason other than mine's gifts. <laughs> and I take cash. Um, I really don't. Just kidding. Um, but, like, so two weeks ago was my birthday. I gave myself some hip surgery, and my wife gave me a Yeti camp chair. Hello. It's amazing because she knew that's what I wanted. She thought about it. She went and got it. It was a surprise, right? That's my love language. And so it was thoughtful and appropriate for me. And this is what happens when we worship together. God has this ability to just show up in our midst. You know, it says that, that, that he's enthroned on the praises of his people. So it's almost as if when we gather to worship and we pray together and we sing together and we listen to God's word taught and we read it together, that God just has this ability to build this throne in our midst. And then, now let me ask you this question. If God, if our praises build God a throne to show up, what kind of throne is your life building? Like, are you, are you needing God to show up in your life? This is, this is the place to start. Man, man, weekly worship actually, it gives us access to the presence of God. Listen, this is more than a pep rally. Man, it's a lifeline. Man, we don't come just because 
we grew up in the South or we grew up, we were living in the South and we're in the Bible Belt, man, we're coming with some expectation that God's going to change our life, that there's some way he's going to show up for us. Now, as we continue to read in Hebrews chapter, uh, in verse 23, Paul writes this. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Man, man, he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, the thing that we believe in. Let's grab a hold to it with everything that we got. Listen, life together helps me to hold my faith when life gets hard. When life gets hard. You know, some of you this week, if I were to ask you about your week, you would just, it would be, it would be dark. You've had some bad news. You've had some difficulty. You've had some family problems. You've had some health challenges. You've had some questions. You've had some doubts, uh, some disappointments, dare I say regrets and shame over the last week. And what can happen in those moments is we begin to doubt God. And we all have doubts. But what we need from each other is just the ability to help each other believe. You know, there's a great story in the Bible about this. So there was, these, there was this poor man, and he, was, uh, he had been paralyzed his entire life, and he was in his 30s. And he had four friends that's, that had heard about Jesus. They'd heard that he was different, that there were some special things about him. And so they thought to themselves, if we could just get him in front of Jesus, maybe Jesus could heal him. If we could just carry him, if we could just get Jesus to put eyes on him, maybe a miracle could happen. And so they grab their friend, they pick him up by his mat, and then they take him to Jesus. And, of course, Jesus is teaching in a house, and it's crowded, and they can't get in because it was not in the south, and there was no hospitality. And so they're on the outside, locked out, and they don't know what to do. So they go up on the roof, and they make a hole in the roof. It was kind of a thatch roof in that particular culture. And they let him down, and they let this man down in, in front of Jesus. Jesus looks at him, looks at his four friends, and says, because of their faith, Get up, take your mat, and walk. Like, don't you need four friends like that? Do you have four friends like that? Like right now in your mind, if you could think of four people who would pick your mat up and help you to believe, who would they be? You know, I can remember some of the darkest times in our life in, uh, that I've shared on multiple occasions. But when our youngest son, John, was in ICU and uh, things were a little dicey, we got some bad news. And so Debbie and I were just taking turns, going back and forth. And I would take the night shift, come home, and try to handle the rest of family duties. And so I can remember one morning I was at home, and she was at the hospital. And I woke up, and I went down just to try to have some time with the Lord and to read my Bible and just to see if there was anything I could get just to get through the day. And I remember thinking to myself, I am all alone. I'm so alone. But I remember over the course of the day, man, I'd get a text or a phone call. Or someone would respond on my blog, or somebody would show up with a meal, and I realized I wasn't alone. And we need friends like that in our lives. Where, where have you lost faith? What dream has died? What challenge seems insurmountable? Man, what, what boundary can you not seem to cross? Man, where have you lost faith? And when we have people around us, they can help us hold on to our faith, even when life gets hard. In verse 24, Paul writes this. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, life together, it forges me into my best. Have you noticed this? Life together, it forges me into my, it forges me into my best. You know, Paul says this. He says, consider. That means it's got to be intentional. Do you notice that you don't just naturally drift towards relationships that help you? Man, we drift towards isolationism. We drift towards vegging out on the couch with Netflix. We drift towards driving into our house and closing the garage door. This is what we drift towards. And what Paul is saying is be intentional about it. You have to what? Fight for it. That's why we have something called fight week. We know it's effort. We know it takes time. We know it takes intentionality. We, we know it takes needing to be, hey, here's a characteristic of Jesus we could all probably use, interruptible. Don't we hate interruptions? I know I do, but I think Jesus just welcomed them. I think he was like, ah, oh, interruption. I'm going to get to see God do something special today. But for us, man, I got things to do. Places to go, people to see, and business to take care of, don't you? I mean, I'm important for crying out loud. Not really. But this is what it means to be intentional about it. And then he uses this word to stir up. Now, the word for stir up just literally means to cut a straight edge around. So imagine that your life is this picture that God is painting. And it's just cutting off the extra edges, the things that you don't need, the things that don't matter. And we should consider how to stir people up. I love what Michelangelo said about this. Someone asked him about uh, creating David, carving David. And he said this, every block of stone has a statue inside it. Every block of stone has a statue inside it. And it's the task of the sculptor to release it. Listen, there's somebody you want to be, isn't there? Like when you think about it, there's somebody you want to be. Like do you remember as a kid when there was somebody you wanted to be? It's probably some superhero or professional athlete. Like, I, I can remember four different people I wanted to be. Number one, I wanted to be Roger Staubach, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Y'all remember him? Yeah, let's go. Back before the current owner of the Cowboys. But um, I wanted to be Larry Bird, power forward for the Boston Celtics, because he's the best shooter in basketball history. I don't care what you say. Johnny Bench catcher for the Cincinnati Reds. Anybody remember the big red machine? And then the fourth one, evil Knievel. Need I say more? <laughs> Those are the four people I wanted to be. Hey, but beyond that, as we grow into adult years and mature years, we start thinking about the type of character that we want. We start thinking about what we want set of us as we grow up. We start thinking about the impact and the influence that we want on other people. And this is what it means we need people to stir us up into that, to help us become that person. Listen, you will be a lesser version of yourself by yourself. You will be a lesser version of yourself by yourself. You need people to help stir you up, to cut out the places that don't belong, and to help fan into flame the places that do belong. And he says this, to love and good works. Stir yourself up to love and good works. Here's what I know. You have a version. You have a version of yourself you want to become. And God has a version of you that he wants you to become. And he has that for all of us. 
And when we begin to go to the work, to have the people in our life that will help us to become that person, that's where true life happens. Life together forges me into being my past. Now, now there are some forces in our world that are forming us and trying to forge us into their image. Have you noticed this? And there's some dark days in culture. You know, we're increasingly facing a world that is anti-Christian. And we have so many messages coming at us through the news and through social media. And I'm not even saying it's all bad, but when's the last time you got a news alert and it was like, ah, you're awesome. Never. It's always tearing us down. Why? Because that's what sells. And this is what is forming us. Think of some of the stuff that we watch and the things that get awarded at, uh, in, at the Oscars that we're filling our minds with. And there are things that are forging our character and forming our outlook and forming our perspective. And we need that to be from godly people who love us and love Jesus. You know, in Proverbs chapter 13, it says, Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Because there's people that you can be around, and they are bad for you. They will let you keep on doing stupid stuff. <laughs> and they're not going to speak up. They're not going to challenge you. They're not going to encourage you. So we need to be around the kind of people that are living the kind of life that we want. We need to be around the kind of people who have the character that we want. We need to be around the kind of people who are in the lifestyle that we want. We need to be around the kind of people who are parenting the way that we would want. Now, it doesn't mean that we exclude other people, but we need to have people in our lives who are helping us be the people that God has created us to be. You know, there's two things it's going to take. It's going to take, number one, encouragement. We need someone who can encourage us. Have you ever known you never need less encouragement? Has anyone ever encouraged you? like, hey, not today. My encouragement tank is full. Right? If there's one thing you can always use more of, it's encouragement. It's a compliment. We always can use more encouragement. Hey, that's been never been more evident than in these two words, Ted Lasso. <laughs> Ted Lasso. If you haven't seen Ted Lasso, you should. Because, man, he just has this way of what? Encouraging, being positive, finding the bright in everything, even when he goes through difficult times. Man, there's a story about a guy in the Bible. He was known as Son of Encouragement. His name was Barnabas. That was his nickname, Barnabas. Paul, who wrote this, would go on missionary journeys. Who would he take with him? Barnabas. Because Barnabas would encourage him when things got tough. I literally have a guy, a friend of mine, who will text me either Saturday night or Sunday morning. And, on, and when his contact information comes up on my phone, it says Barnabas. Because he is an encourager. And I know if I read it, I'm going to be encouraged no matter what's happening. He is a Barnabas, and we all need those people in our lives. Amen? Hey, but check this out. Who are you Barnabas for? Who is always willing to take your call? Who, when they see your name come up on caller ID, is like, oh, I got to take this. Excuse me. I know, Mr. President, you need me right now, but this is Barnabas. I need to take this call. Like, who is that for you? Who are you always encouraging, always helping? Now, we can't just always encourage and help people grow, can we? There also has to be what? Challenge. Because we have blind spots. And there's places in our life that we don't see that need help, that need work, that need challenge, need someone to point out. But we need someone to do that who loves us, will encourage us, but also loves Jesus. And they love what the work that God is doing in our lives. We need encouragement, but we also need challenge. You know, there's a quote by a guy named William Arthur Ward. And he said, flatter me, I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. 
Ignore me and I won't forgive you, but encourage me and I will not forget you. Who, who, is, who is stirring you up? Who in your life as you think about, and they're, they're helping you to be better? They're, they're looking into your life and helping you to sharpen some rough edges. They're pointing out some blind spots in love to help you be everything that God's created you to be. Who, who is stirring you up? And then finally, finally, Paul concludes this section with this phrase. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a deadline coming for all of us, for some sooner than others. There's a deadline coming. You know, there's this phrase called chronoptimist. And a chronoptimist is just someone who underestimates the time it takes to do anything. Any of y'all like that? You're late everywhere you go. Now, what Paul is trying to encourage and infuse into us is this expectancy for what's going to happen at the end. Listen, life together, it will compel us to live for what matters most. And we get so caught up in the mundane. And if I were to ask you today, how are you doing? There's one word that probably would bubble up to the top, but it would at least be in the top three. Busy. Busy. And if we really evaluated what we're busy at, guess what? It doesn't matter most. It actually probably doesn't even matter middle probably matters least but not this because this is how you live out the great commandment this is how you love God and love people man this is the groundwork man this great commandment is the MRI that sits over our lives to help us evaluate what matters most worship and discipleship are what drive the great command do you know what I believe is the greatest evangelism tool that we'll have in the next 25 years? Hospitality. Sitting across the table from people. Do you know that it's usually distance and not differences that uh, create hostility? And if we're able to sit across the table from our neighbors and our friends and have conversation with them about why we believe life comes together in Jesus. And we're able to talk about the experiences that we had and maybe some of the false belief and some of the, uh, some of the explanations that we have, some of the objections that we have, that we actually would see revival and see people come to know him. And I have to believe that what God has done in me and so many of you is like a wildfire ready to be let loose. You know, I had a, a mentor tell me one time, says, you know, in life, what you do is you have this circle, and you begin to pull people into your circle. You know, when you're in high school, you have some friends, and you pull them in, and maybe you go to church with them, maybe you play sports with them, and you generally have some high school friends for the rest of your life. And then as you grow, you're pulling friends in, maybe friends that you work with or friends that you connect with through sports. And so you have this circle of people, and then there comes a point in life where we have some differences. And we forget why we loved them in the first place. And we begin to maybe push them out of the circle. And he said, the thing you have to watch out for is that when you push more people outside the circle, then you pull into the circle. And we have to be intentional about pulling people into the circle, about doing life together, about worshiping together on a regular basis, about being in opportunities to disciple each other on a regular basis. Recently, there was a, a fight on, uh, in social media and some comments of a post. 
and it was about going to church. And, and one, one, one guy said this. He said, I've gone, I've gone to church for 30 years now. And in that time, I've heard about 3,000 sermons. But for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. I'm not offended. So I think I'm wasting my time. And the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. And then there was this back and forth. And then one guy wrote this. He says, I've been married for 30 years now. In that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu for a single one. But I do know this. They all nourished me. They gave me strength when I needed to go to work. And if my wife had not given me these meals, I would be physically dead today. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. What? What would it look like three months from now? If you just said, we're going to adopt this habit of weekly worship, man, if we can go, we're going, no matter what happens. Man, we're going to be there. And if we can't be there, we'll watch online. If we're traveling or if we're sick or we got something going on, but, but if we just adopted this habit, a weekly worship. And then we just got around some people every week to talk about what God was doing in our life to help us know Jesus. Here's what I promise you. I'd be willing to bet my last dollar that your life would be better. I'd be willing to, yeah. I'd be willing to bet. As you look back on those three months, you'd be like, they may have been hard and I went through some junk, but man, people got me through it. I don't know how I'd have made it without them. I'm willing to bet they could be the best three months of your life. And that's why we need to fight for it. Let's pray together.